Welcome to episode 41 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's highest rated open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and boy, do we have a very special guest for you tonight. Before we get to that, though, let's do some introductions. First, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, is everyone's favorite eBay and Etsy camera gas pusher, is Mr. Paul Rival. How excited are you for the Bengals' chances to make the Super Bowl? Let's just put it this way. I'm not going to lay any money on it. From Sydney, Australia, a man who thinks the Super Bowl is a large bowl filled with Tim Tams is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Can you tell me what exactly a Tim Tam is? Tim Tam is probably the best biscuit in the world. It's chocolate with more chocolate and a bit more chocolate. And if you do it right, you can actually suck your coffee through it. Now, is a biscuit a cookie or is a biscuit a biscuit? That's a good question. We're hitting language barriers here. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, a cookie is different to me. A cookie is one of those round things with, you know, chopped chips and so on on them. A biscuit is something that's that's manufactured to be eaten with or without coffee. And finally, from the corporate headquarters of Volta Coffee is Mr. Anthony Rue, a man who, if you search for his name on IMDb, is listed as Bad Side Dancer in the movie Dreamgirls. <laughs> Anthony, is it true you really can't dance? I am terrible at dancing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. As promised, we have a special guest tonight. Uh, with us, we have Brandon Monroe. Paul, you want to give a, a quick intro to Brandon? Yeah, I met Brandon at a camera show in Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh, last fall, early fall. We we had a great conversation. He uh, wound up buying a Nikonos from, from one of the sellers. And uh, after he bought the Nikonos, he she she had some questions about it or something. He actually shot some film through it and then reached reached out to her to uh, tell her how it worked, which I thought was very cool. And then I found out he was he had taught himself to repair contact cameras, so which got my attention since I had four of them that didn't really work very well. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you. I appreciate that, guys. Yeah, um, I almost exclusively specialize in contacts, mostly because uh, it seems like everyone has one that's broken. <laughs> uh, they're great cameras. I use them. I use mine every day. I usually shoot on a uh, a pre-war contacts too, and I just really enjoy them. They're just built like tanks. I don't have like a money, and uh, man, they sure are underappreciated but they're a real joy if you can get them working again. That's a cool intro. Uh, we'll get a little bit deeper into that, but I want to let in some of our people we have in the waiting room. Looks like there's four people in there. Let's let them in. So Brandon, have you taken your Nikonos underwater yet? I have not. I'm actually um, going to be getting with, there's an eBay store that's pretty popular for it. They pressure test it. And I want to get that uh, pressure tested prior because I'm, I'm just too worried about ruining it. Yeah, I had a, I've got a, a, a two, a four and a five. Actually, I've got two fives. It turned out that the four was not watertight. I've always heard the fours had the biggest issue of failure. Yeah, they've got I've they've, got, they've got like a custom O-ring that's a molded O-ring as opposed to being a, yeah. a round O-ring. And I got a new one. I got new old stock O-rings and, yep. and replaced everything and lubed it up and took it underwater. And about halfway through the roll, I was like, something doesn't feel right. And I look up front and you can see the water line halfway up the lens. Oh, that's tragic. And uh, I got it working again. The, I got the lens dried out, but it's completely non-focusing right now. Oh. But the camera's working again. I just can't take it underwater anymore. I just can't trust it. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. At least you always have a good hammer is what I've yes. found with this camera. <laughs> but the uh, <laughs> the five, I've shot hundreds of, of exposures with my five in the last three years. And it's a real delight to shoot with underwater. Oh, I'm very excited. I have a cruise scheduled uh, this summer. And oh, fantastic. I'm definitely 
I'll definitely be taking it with me. That'll be the only camera going, probably. Fantastic. All right, we have four people we let in. I see Gilligan. I see Aiden Dean's back. How you doing, man? Good. I'm good. How are y'all? Doing well. Steve Wilcox. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. My uh, first time. Is my audio coming through? Yes, sounds good. You sound great, yeah. That sounds great. Great. Thank you. How did you find out about the show? Uh, well, I've checked the website out occasionally, and my son-in-law, Alex Dietrich, encouraged me to join tonight. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may somehow may have inspired him to be a camera geek as well uh, to some degree. So very nice. And that's an awesome uh, segue into Alex Dietrich. Alex, welcome back. It's been a while since we've seen you on the show. According to my records, episode 26, I think was the last time you were on. Is that, is that sound about I, right? Yeah, that, that, that does sound about right. And, and my father-in-law gets about 75% of the credit. <laughs> He, who gets the he's last gone, he's, fall, he's fallen hard guys he's fallen hard really hard where, where are you guys calling from <laughs> are you in the same area uh same state he's in he's in waterford near detroit and i'm uh near the lakeshore in michigan on the west side a little town called spring lake oh okay i conveniently moved five minutes from camera exchange if any of you've heard of it in uh in waterford uh that's dangerous if you're into mamiya stuff Ooh. And one more uh, first-time caller, but it's someone whose name I recognize, um, Eric Cass-Lewis. Eric, welcome to the show. Good seeing you. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Excellent. All right, Eric, where are you from for anybody who doesn't, doesn't know who you are? I am Dutch, but I live in Belgium near the French border. Nice. So we have another Euro caller on a non-Euro episode. So uh, we thank you for, for staying up in the middle of the night to come join and talk with us. He said he was going to make a large pot of coffee, so he's... It looks a little over caffeinated, but uh, I've got some Belgian beer. Oh, oh, yes, it's the one. Yeah. (laughs) My first experience with Eric was uh, several years back. I had posted something about Orvo film and Eric goes, ah, you like Orvo, don't you? Give me your address. So uh, he packaged up about like 50 or 60 feet of a couple different Orvo film stocks. So uh, thank you uh, again for that, Eric. With pleasure. Right. Um, All right. Well, we have Brandon Monroe on the show. We did a quick intro about how Brandon got started. He met Paul at one of the camera shows. Uh, Brandon is self-taught in how to fix contacts. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking to Brandon, learning about what he does. We'll talk about uh, this ice icon contacts range finders pre and post war. But before we go any further down that hole, I just want to quickly address some errata. Uh, it turns out that three fourths of the Camerosity crew screwed the pooch uh, in the last episode when we were talking about the Pentax MX. Uh, Anthony had thought that there was a depth of field preview on that camera, and and I kind of led the way and said, no, I don't think it, it does. And we all agreed with me. Uh, but it turns out Anthony was right. Uh, we, we received probably more feedback about that one thing we got wrong than anything we've received in the history of the show. I got emails through my website, comments on my site. We saw people make uh, comments in the Facebook group, letting us know that we got that one wrong. So uh, we are definitely wrong. So you guys know we have docked the pay for two weeks from the the three hosts who got that one wrong. So we will not be paid for episode 40. But then we also got another thing wrong too, uh, that not as many people noticed, but uh, when we were talking about the K1000, we had commented that it does not have a self timer, uh, which most of them do not. But Marcy Merrill, who is on that show pointed out that some did. 
Uh, apparently it was like a mid-model change. I don't know exactly when or how to tell the difference other than just looking at it. So apparently there were some K1000s that had uh, a self-timer. The Pentax MX does have a depth of field preview button. But after that, we've spent so much time on Pentax. I think we're on a Pentax moratorium. What do you guys think? Everybody's nodding yes. We'll just say it loud. <laughs> just want to point out that with the MX, the thing that was cool about it is that it's actually the self-timer that is the depth of preview right. button. You, you you push it one way and it's a timer. Yeah. You push it the other way and it's for the depth of field. So and they, that's what uh, threw me off. I'm just so used to it being a dedicated button when I looked and I go, well, it just has a self-timer and I didn't bother to touch it or read the manual. But anyway, all right. So, so Brandon, I mean, I think the first question I have for you of all the different kinds of cameras that you could learn, why why contacts? Like, what really got you into that system and to want to learn how to fix them? Well, you know, you know, it's always preached like German engineering, precision German engineering. So, of course, the first thing that I wanted was a Leica. Well, that's probably the last thing that I could realistically afford. I kept seeing these amazing looking cameras for sale, and they were all broken. And I'm, I, you know, I have a mechanical background. I went to school for auto mechanics, and then I'm currently going to school for uh, aviation mechanics. So I was like, you know what? Let's let's take a look at this. I, I, the more I looked into it, the more I realized the state of camera repair as a whole. And then looking at these, I talked to Henry Scherer, which is very popular in the uh, contact space. He's kind of the golden standard for repairs for these. And uh, upon contacting, my find he has an 11 year backlog, and I'm like, well, that's just not good enough. <laughs> um, so I'd already, I already had the camera in hand, not working. So I was like, well, I guess we're digging in, and it's just been a trial and error process, a lot of research, and a lot of really good help from some really good people in this industry. And uh, here we are now, and I'm, I'm, I, I can get them working. <laughs> just, just out of interest, have you actually managed to get that first camera working, or? Was that just uh, your yes. your learning your learning camera? Yes, and uh, I, a lot of lessons were learned with that camera. So the biggest curse with this system, and I'm going to say it's uh, the specifically the post-war models. Them putting a uh, an access for the tension adjustment was the worst thing that they could have designed into that camera body because that gave anyone the ability to go in and just increase tension as that lubricant uh, became insufficient. And um, a good majority of the cameras out there in the post wars are over tensioned to the point to where the springs are essentially failed. So they'll they'll never be able to achieve proper shutter speeds again. Um, and that's the biggest issue that I've noticed with them as a whole. Um, out of both the pre-war and post-war, that's that's definitely the, the the big issue, and it's something to be very aware of for anyone that's looking at one of these cameras. If that thing fires off like a uh, like a Pentax six seven slapping, you probably want to avoid it. Are you talking about the tensioning adjustment? That's kind of like the easy access from just inside the back. There's a little hole, threaded hole that you can get into without taking the camera out of the chassis. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That little you'll you'll see it. Um, yeah, right, right where you were pointing right there. Yeah, a little um, threaded hole. Yeah, that little port. Yeah, you can shove a small driver in there and you can tension. And the fun thing about that tension is the way that this camera is designed is it can only add. You cannot subtract tension. So if you go too far, it requires an entire disassembly. The way this camera is designed is uh, that shutter mechanism is only accessed by essentially disassembling the entire camera. So if, if you over tension, it's it's kaput. So it, it's a very long process to get to get in there and, and release tension. So most people 
it, it's mostly recommended that you just you don't touch it really. Um, if you're having an issue where you you're having to add tension over time, it's probably about time for a CLA anyway. So that's really the best way to go around it. When you tension it that through that method, are you tensioning both curtains or just the second one? So the way that the contact system is designed, that's including the pre-war and the post-war, is the bias is built into the lower roller. So it's actually one single adjustment for both the upper and lower curtains. Okay. For anybody uh, who might be listening, who's not even familiar with the contact shutter, it's a focal plane shutter similar to Leica's and most other focal plane shutters. But instead of traveling horizontally, it travels vertically, kind of like a garage door. And it has rollers above and below the film gate. And the uh, the curtains, instead of being made entirely of cloth, they're made out of, is it brass? I mean, what kind of metal is that? Um, they're both brass and aluminum, depending on what you, uh, what you have. They've, they tried aluminum and brass on the contacts. One, the contacts, the post-war contacts are aluminum. And then the pre-wars, I, I, I think they're mostly brass. I, I'm, don't quote me on that. I, actually, I think the post-wars might mostly be brass as well. I can't remember exactly, to be honest. So if you kind of like in your head, picture a garage door, instead of being made out of uh, panels, it like rolls up on a curtain and then there's a curtain on the bottom too. So it's, it's essentially the same concept of what Leica did, but going the other direction using metal slats held together by ribbons. The ribbons, am I, am I right to say are one of the more common failure points on those? I mean, I, you recently showed a picture of what they look like when they become frayed. But is that yes. super common? Yeah, that's that's um that's been seen in probably about 50% of all the post wars that I've dealt with. The um the ribbons on the post war cameras, uh, they don't actually ride on a friction clutch. It's a very different mechanism of action versus the pre-war cameras. So they're not technically considered as much of a wear item as they were in the pre-wars. In pre-war cameras, you will be replacing ribbons somewhat frequently. Um, now in the post-wars, it was assumed to be not so much as a wear item as there's not actually a friction mechanism that's riding on that curtain strap on that ribbon. Um, however, I, what I've noticed is over time that, that small folded, uh, curtains, the small metal folded curtains, uh, they catch on that ribbon over time and it'll fray it. And then it just really messes up your, your speeds and it can, it can, it can hinder the action of the shutter pretty severely. If it gets bad enough, uh, any fraying at all at this point, it's just immediate replacement. And from what I've seen, I actually had a an inspected shutter recently that had no fraying uh, still fail. And it failed at the threads that that uh, fasten it to the curtain. Um, so going uh, here on out, I'm actually going to be replacing ribbons on all serviced uh, okay. post-war contacts as they go through me. So where do you get replacement ribbons for a nearly century old camera? I got a supplier out of Japan that supplies uh, both my uh, pre-war and uh, post-war ribbon. The post-war ribbon's much thinner. Uh, that one was a bit more difficult to source. The pre-war, the best uh, source is, uh, I'm going to ruin the pronunciation here. It's Asahi, Aki Asahi, I believe is the, it's, it's something similar. <laughs> That's what I've found to be the best. Now, do you know, is it, is it silk? Is it just like vinyl or cloth or what's, what are they made out of? Yeah. Yeah. It's a silk ribbon. Silk ribbon. Okay. Yeah. And then I, and then I fasten with a silk thread as well. I use silk thread when I'm fastening. If we can step back for just a second for our listeners who aren't already deeply into invested in, in contacts, um, just to give people some perspective as to what we're talking about here. You know, Zeiss Icon, massive camera manufacturer made 
folding cameras pre-war, uh, the Super Iconta line uh, were uh, medium format folders. Uh, their contacts were their rangefinders. Mike, do you know, since you're working on the Contacts 1, do you remember when it was introduced? The original version of the Contacts was released in 32. They released it in response to the Leica rangefinder, which had been out since like 25, 26. By 1930, it was already one of the most popular 35 millimeter cameras in the world. And Zeiss Icon, after the merger in 26, focused tremendously on roll film cameras and they they must have just missed the boat to be honest in all the years of research i've done i never found an explanation on what took them so long to embrace 35 millimeter but by the time they got the message hey we need to compete with the leica um it was quite a bit later so the original contacts didn't come out till 32 and it was very much a work in progress a lot of people talk about how complex German cameras are, and the Leica certainly are complex, but only to a degree. If you actually look at how a Leica is designed, it's it's a fairly simple design. You know, it's it's complex in terms of precision and hand built. You know, everything, all the fasteners are are, are custom to each unit and fitted to every tolerance. Uh, you know, nothing on those cameras was mass produced. But when Zeiss Icon created the contacts, they took that German stereotype of if it takes 10 pieces to make something, the Germans would use 20. And the original contacts were really, really complicated. And they were sort of learning as they were going. So um, throughout that entire first generation of contacts from 1932 to 36, there's many different revisions. In my review for the contacts one on my site, I explain uh, the, the different versions, but even within those versions, there's some that have features from others. You could have an early version of the contacts and send it back to the, in fact, most of them were sent back to the factory to repair or upgrade something. So you might have an earlier contacts B with contacts F features or something along those lines. Um, if you actually look, they at one point even flip-flop the orientation of where the rangefinder is. The rangefinder window on some is on the inside, on the others is on the outside. Uh, the original contacts did not have any slow speeds at all. They didn't add that until like the mid mid models. Um, they changed quite a bit on it. even the shape of the body changed. So like you think of the contacts one as one single model, but it's actually like a whole bunch of little models with this evolution about it. And then they, they didn't do the contacts two and three until 36. And so at that point, you've got your two separate models. The main difference being that the two is without a light meter. The three had a, an uncoupled light meter. Yeah, that's true, 100% correct. And then post-war, they resume production and they just add a letter A to it. So you've got your 2A and your 3A, which from the exterior look very similar. I mean, and I'm not actually, because I've never worked with a pre-war, it'd be interesting to hear the differences between the two and the 2A or the three and the 3A. Uh, but they continued on with the uncoupled um, light meter for into the 50s, correct? Yes, that's correct. One thing, though, and Brandon will be able to speak to the innards a little bit better because I've never so much as seen the inside of these two. But it, it's not totally accurate that the 2A and the 3A were just continuations. Remember, the pre-war contacts were all made in Dresden, which would ultimately become East Germany. And all the post-war ones were made in Stuttgart. Um, so while they're both Zeiss Icon cameras, they're both labeled the same way, the, the Zeiss Icon contacts twos and threes 
had to be kind of not necessarily from the ground up, but quite a few changes were made. You know, you know, the, the range finder is completely different. Mm -hmm. Brandon mentioned the design of the shutter was revised. It was simplified. So the contacts one was designed by Heinz Kupenbender and it didn't sell nearly as well as they had hoped. You know, the, the Leica was just completely destroying it in sales. Uh, so when they redesigned it in 36, Hubert Nerwin was put in charge of coming up with the design of the next one. So he changed a lot between the one and the two. Externally, they look very different. Uh, they share a similar but not identical shutter. In some ways, the post-war models were kind of in that same regard too, where they made a decent number of changes to them. Uh, both in the interest of simplification, mass producing, and I would guess, this is just my own opinion, a, an attempt to keep the prices from further escalation. Do the, the two and the and the three and the 2A and 3A all share the same lens mount? Yes. Yes. No. No? No. What's different? The mount is the same. What they did was that they wanted to have a new Biogon 35 millimeter 2.8. So when the new... 2A came out in the 3A, you couldn't put the old Contax uh, Zeiss uh, Biogon on it because of the retracting rear elements. So the pre-war or even some of the post-war Biogons couldn't fit the 2A. So if you have a Biogon that has the protruding uh, rear end, it doesn't fit on a 2A or a 3A. Uh, that is important to know because you basically ruin your camera. So there is a small difference. It'll make contact with the glass element? It will make contact with the shutter. It okay. just doesn't fit. So as I am a, a big uh, fan of the Biogon, I cannot use the old Biogons, of which there are three types, on my 2A cameras. On my 2A, I can use two, that is Zeiss lenses. The planar and the biogon. The planar at 3.5, the biogon at 2.8. So Eric, it's the later, the later uh biogons are okay. It's the early yes. ones that will not fit the 2A or 3A. The early ones will not fit it. Okay. Now the, the an example of that is this one. This is a you see that? Yeah. That will not go on a 2A or a 3A. So Eric is holding up that's a, a pre-war biogon, right? Yes, it's a pre-war wartime. They made some until 1948, 49. I don't want to say the S word too often, but is that what the Jupiter 12 yes. Soviet lens is, is a copy of? That's what I'm holding right now. Yep. Okay. Don't say to me that it's a copy because I and I'm the freak here, you know. So, but <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I want to say though, it, it, you kind of bring up a point that had occurred to me that I never really explored. I actually have the Jupiter 12. And I tried mounting it on a Nikon rangefinder and it wouldn't fit. It made contact in that too. So the reason is different. So the question was though, is the mount different? From the way you're describing it, it's a design of the shutter that interferes with the rear element, not yes. necessarily the mount. You'll see here a, a biogon that is post-war. Okay. Yeah, that's right? way shallower. Yes. Okay. And that's the big difference. So I think the answer is this, the mount's the same, but not every pre-war Zeiss lens will work on the post-war cameras due to interference. Is that more accurate? Due to, yes, absolutely. Interference, okay. How about the 21s? Were the 21s also have the same, that much of a protruding rear element? Yes. What I found is it, it doesn't work on a on a two. I like shooting the, the, the Context 2 cameras. The 21 just doesn't do it. It fits, 
but it's not happening. I have them both here. Uh, I took them out because this is one of these uh, things that always come. So you got the, the, the 35 and the 21, and they come in these nice pouches of of course, because I am in Europe, so it's easier to get. <laughs> For the benefit of a future Camerosity trivia challenge, I have to say, uh, in case I want to use it as a question, the original uh, Zeiss Biogon, the 3.5 centimeter, was designed in 1934 by Ludwig Bertel. Yeah. So everybody remember that. <laughs> well, here's my contribution. When Anthony asked, it, well, how can you tell the difference between a 2 and a 3, or 2A and a 3, a, a 2 and a 2A, or a 3 and a 3A? I, I have a terrible time with these things, but there is one tip off on these cameras that, that I know about now. On the rangefinder window, on the two and three, it will be much longer. The, the beveled, yeah, it's, it's completely different. The beveled like it's edge totally will be different. totally different. And right. you look at it, you can, you'll know just by immediate, the first glance, you'll know which one it is, whether it's a two or a two A. Brandon, the, the rangefinders on the post-war models is it a solid piece of glass or are there mirrors in there oh the, it's 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 um it's a it's a wedge style rangefinder so it is solid glass um are, okay. are you talking of the the prism itself yeah 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 here here's a prism from a post-war camera it is it is one piece of glass just like on the pre-wars one piece of glass yes okay they just shortened it though exactly it is just shorter yes okay so Zeiss was a huge fan of using not only prism, but single piece pieces of glass for their range finders. Um, I, I can't pretend to know all the models, but I do know that the Contessa 35, that folding camera, Anthony, I know you're a huge fan of that. Love it. Uh, that uses a very similar design too. The plus to those is in theory, they should be resistant to coming out of alignment. Yes. Because with like a, with like a Leica and most range finders, it's actually just mirrors separated by air. So any part of that mirror gets jostled or bumped or something that'll throw off the alignment. But with, with the way Zeiss did it, and again, this is in theory because things can still happen to them. Having a solid piece of glass means the camera should be able to kind of get bumped around a little bit. And in theory, your rangefinder shouldn't come out of alignment. As someone who's such a big fan of the rangefinders, I will say personally, I think the contest, the folding Contessa 35 is probably the best Zeiss camera there is to me. I'm, I am such a huge fan. It's bulletproof. I have bought so many of these and they are all just perfect. Infinity alignment, like you said, you can't knock them out. They're just perfect. Every time you pick one up, doesn't matter if it's been sitting in a box for 50 years. It's just dead on every time. Yeah. Yeah. And then a leaf shutter on top of it. You just can't really beat it. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoy shooting that camera. Oh, it's great. Quick question. While we're on the topics of the rangefinders. You know, some of the reading, I have been known to pull apart a camera and over lubricate and do things like that to get things at least working. I guess two things first, before I get to the rangefinders, isn't one of the, the differences, I don't own a pre-war two, I, owe, I have three post-war, but isn't there, the thing that I've noticed to differentiate the two is there's like that foot on the bottom yes. of the camera that, that projects out. To me, that's kind of the main thing I look for, you know, rather than you know, dialing down to the details. But uh, anyway, so for the listeners, if it has a foot on the bottom to stop it from tipping over, that's a probably a pre-war uh, contacts. If it sands the, the foot, it's probably post-war. Also very notable on that too, um, for differentiation, um, the frame, frame counter is on the winding dial on all post-war cameras. So okay. that's really substantial too, because you actually have a, you actually have a frame counter window on a uh, pre-war. Okay. And then the, the other thing that's a little frustrating to us, uh, amateur camera thrashers, repair thrashers would be the, um, 
the non-adjustability of the rangefinder alignment on the contacts. Now, I've I've read where I think where Harry will unglue them and yep. you know fly a ship to the sun and let it unglue the glue, you know, and and so what's your take on that, Brandon? Yeah, on the uh, on the post-war units, that bedding that they use on those on those lenses that tends to shrink over time, and oh, like most of the cameras that I get. Uh, do have a vertical alignment issue. That really is the only fix is to, and that bedding is that's some tough stuff. Uh, they really, they really fix that uh, versus the pre, the post uh, pre-war cameras because all of that bedding on the pre-war rangefinders, it almost is always failing uh, and cracks mm. and cracks and just disintegrates into pieces. I can guarantee a hard bump, and you're probably going to lose your rangefinder function on a lot of pre-wars if they haven't had that bedding replaced. Yeah, the post-wars, the alignment's very difficult to do. And uh, it does require just completely unseating and reseating that glass and trying to make make the adjustment that way. Sadly, you don't get to turn a screw on these and uh, and get that lined up yep. again. Okay, thank you. And that's really the 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 biggest flaw with the prism design is yes, it's more accurate. Yes, for the era in which these cameras were designed to be used, they were probably pretty tough. But now that 80, 90, 100 years have passed being able to repair them is much more difficult than like a Leica design where you could buy a new beam splitter. You can buy new front surface mirrors. Prior to the show, we were talking about Martin Selig, who does a lot of front surface mirrors for TLRs, but uh, any kind of front surface mirror can be used to replace the glass and a air spaced mirror v- uh, range finder. But the design that Zeiss used when they go bad, like, like Brandon saying, is it, it, it's you're basically like rebuilding the whole range finder. Yes. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And the big issue that you get is um and uh, over the the past years, if it's been serviced before, a lot of times people will use improper methods. And the issue with these lenses and the glass used is it's very susceptible to conchoidal fractures, kind of like what you would see on like an Indian arrowhead. Um, and I, I discussed this with Paul. I've been trying to work, make a workaround on this in those situations where you have those damaged elements that are irreparable. And what I've actually found as uh, we were talking about the Contessa 35, if you've ever used one of those, you'll know that you have a round rangefinder patch. Well, I'm actually, uh, anytime you have those conchoidal fractures, it's almost always going to be found on the edges of your rangefinder patch. And you're just going to see these like weird light patterns from those, uh, from those fra- fra- fractured glass. Um, and I'm actually using a vinyl mask on some of the inner uh, lenses inside of the rangefinder mechanism to kind of essentially just mask off that that damaged area. So it actually makes a very satisfying look um, as as the finished result, and you and you no longer see those issues. Um, if you've ever looked through a lot of these cameras, even even in good conditioned ones, you'll get some just kind of general ugliness on the edges of the rangefinder window, just from issues with uh, variances in the prism design and stuff like that. Wow, that's neat. I would have never thought there's a way to improve that. Oh, it's great. Uh, I've had a lot of success. I've done it on my uh, my main 2A, and uh, it's really satisfying. It's just like using a Contessa 35 rangefinder. Has anybody on this show had any experience with one of Brandon's repaired contacts? Yeah, I have one right here. Oh, wow. How convenient. It's a 3A. Uh, in fact, he has three more, <laughs> two more three A's and one two A of mine. <laughs> yeah, 
the, uh, we, we, you would have had two. I found out uh, pretty late after that failed ribbon. I was like, well, that's not going out anymore. We're replacing all the ribbons on all the post-war cameras from now on. <laughs> so as a professional podcaster, Paul, what, what's your verdict on Brandon's repairs? Well, Brandon, Brandon had a checklist of things he wanted me to tell him whether I liked or didn't like. And uh, I will say that it's the smoothest camera that I own at this point. The thing that's always bothered me about contacts and Nikons is that the the focusing on it was always it was never smooth enough. It was it was always jumpy and uh, and not the correct the dampening varied as depending on where the helical was. And I, and I know it was just age. They were probably perfect when they came out of the factory. This one is just absolutely smooth as silk. Has just the right amount of drag on it. The rangefinder is bright and clear. Uh, the speeds fire at all all speeds. He got almost all the Zeiss bumps off the back. There's one minuscule Zeiss bump. But other than that, the camera is just a joy. But my, my problem is I'm going to have to try to figure out which one I'm going to keep because I really can't keep four of them. But I think the 2A will probably be the one that... Uh, that I stick with, though I like this one an awful lot. That one actually has a responsive meter on it too. You know, I'm actually having yeah. pretty good luck with those so far on those on, on those uh, selenium cells. I'm actually had very good luck. My, my 3A is spot on. It oh, they're works great. Perfectly fine. The meter is perfectly fine in it. Yeah, this one is too. It uh, it just uh, jumps and it, it it's it moves very smoothly and. It's testing out within about a quarter of a stop. Yeah, I knew. I noticed that one was really close. That's a that's a really good responsive meter. It was jumping like crazy on me. You had mentioned uh, Zeiss bumps. Can you explain what that is? Yes. Yeah. So Zeiss bumps. Um, it's just like a it's a corrosion that's really common with the Zeiss cameras. A lot of other manufacturers had it too, but I don't know how Zeiss got spit the bill on that one. But they really envelop that name it's this it's horrible green corrosion that builds up underneath the leatherette that actually the the one that you're actually seeing on that one paul that was uh we, we had talked that those cameras had had probably uh cla work in the past um i was not able to remove that leatherette whatever glue they used on that on their prior repair uh was going to end up just the post-war cameras had a thinner leatherette on them and uh it, it's very easy to damage and whoever had serviced that in the past had re-glued it with something that was going to disintegrate that uh leatherette on attempt so yeah i i, I noticed that it was a singular zeiss bump i started digging to try to get at it and i was like this is going to ruin this leatherette and the issue with that replacing that is there's that really pretty embossed zeiss logo on the back of all these cameras yeah. And it's really nice on the pre-war cameras because it helps differentiate you from the Kievs if you have that that nice looking Zeiss embossed logo on there. So I really try to avoid damaging the leatherette on the pre-war cameras because everyone always assumes it's a Kiev most of the time. Yeah, that, that was the issue with that one. So most of the time I am able to get the Zeiss bumps eliminated completely. And what I do is I actually, I, I do a, a, like an enamel coat to prevent that from ever happening again. Oh, okay. So when you get the skin off, you do the vinyl coat underneath the uh, the covering. Yes, exactly. Because it, it always happens on the studs that are built uh, like on the pressure plate that, right. that fasten the pressure plate to the rear plate. That's usually where you're going to see those those bumps appear uh, just from that differentiation in metal. They're almost always brass rivets that, that yep. go through the door and it's yep. only on the cameras that use leather. So like later cameras that have like the synthetic stuff, you'll usually not see that on there. When I sent my uh, contacts one to Radu, he also removed my ice bumps too. I imagine the same way by putting like a 
enamel or nail polish or yep. something to kind of shield it from happening again. Eric, did uh, I know you have a number of the uh, of the twos and threes and two A's and three A's. Do you have someone that do you do your own service on them or do you have someone in Europe? I, I have uh, my friend Rick who couldn't be here tonight because he's working tomorrow. Rick and I have a deal. I give him stuff uh, that I find and he repairs my cameras, not only my contacts cameras, but also my folders, my super contas, etc. So we have a good deal. I find him the good stuff for the good prices and he repairs my cameras. Now I have, I don't know, 15, 20 uh, contacts cameras. They're all serviced and that is something else because it's not for me. It's very easy to find a contacts camera here in Europe. Uh, don't forget that the uh, soldiers that came back to 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 Europe and that were stationed also in the 50s in, in Germany, Dutch, Belgian, French, they came back with their camera, used it. Uh, they could buy it without tax. You know, it was a tax-free purchase, but they've never been touched since. So for me to buy a contact rangefinder could cost me between 100 and 200 euros, which is kind of the equivalent of dollars. You know. However, to get them working is a different story because to get my camera serviced, uh, and luckily Rick and I, we have a good working relationship. He comes here a lot, you know, we go shooting out, you know, shooting outside here. That wouldn't be possible because a context CLA is just where to find them. I'm not even talking about pricing. I, I don't really care about that. For me, to get them serviced, to get them right, it takes time and effort. And these are very complex and, and difficult cameras. Now, if some of you uh, have joined the Zeiss Historica Association, Stephen Cove says hello to all of you, by the way. <laughs> but so does Rick. So for me, it is getting the cameras in. Now, this is not only context cameras. It's, it's all, it's, it's, it's a lot of Zeiss cameras. I am surrounded by them, you know. Eric, do you have any of the context ones? Uh, no, I don't like them. You don't I like hate them? them. No, I, don't. I stay away from it. There's no way. What don't you like about them? I can't use them in, you know, when I work. Uh, okay. As maybe some of you know, I, I do have the, uh, the great honor to be publicized in, in many museums here in, in, in Europe. Budapest and Sofia and in Bulgaria and Paris and Verdun and whatever. I can't work with them. I, the contact zone is it's like it's like my nightmare, you know. It just doesn't do it for me, you know. <laughs> but Brandon, can I ask you a question? Yeah, certainly. In my uh, experience, as far as contacts, a lot of people buy contacts cameras because they're absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. Oh yes, absolutely. And I agree with you. And I and I find it heartwarming to see somebody really getting to know how to fix these cameras. It's fantastic. How are you going to deal with the enormous demand that is there? It, it is absolutely crazy here in Europe. I went to Cologne, I went to Munich, I, I went to Paris uh, to get these things serviced. So my question to you, Brendan, first of all, I, I give you, in French, we say, je te donne des éloges, which means fantastic. How are you going to deal with that? Because people were going to come after you like wolves. I really appreciate that, Eric. Um, I'll tell you what, I've uh, prior to this podcast, I've done no advertising and I'm already booked out about five months. Um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have made uh, some, I've made quite a bit of investments in, uh, in, in tools and uh, different things to make the job easier and faster, along with a lot of testing on my end. I've been doing a lot of testing on my end because this is pretty early 
in business and I want to be sure that these cameras are in great working order. I want everything that I you I, I send out to be a user, to be able to be a user is the main thing. I know most are going to sit on the shelves, but uh, I use mine every day. And that's what I, I want the experience to be capable of, of anyone who gets a camera through me. I mentioned that I'm in aviation school. I have a uh, decent nine to five right now. And uh, actually due to the incredibly overwhelming uh, demand, I am taking a semester off to further pursue this very uh it's a passion project really for me so this is uh this is really a big enjoyment of mine so i am actually taking a semester off of school to pursue this and see where this goes because like you said there's a uh, heavy heavy demand here and um i'm getting great feedback i'm getting a lot of interest and i think i'd be a fool to not at least explore that uh considering i have that option to do so so uh, at, for now, that's that's uh, the way I'm going to be going about it, and we'll see how it continues. Uh, but yes, I've definitely experienced the demand so far. I get a lot of cold calls from different people with no advertisement, so that's really promising for me to see that type of interest. And to see me at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning in Europe, because I wanted to see you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you one thing that I figured out already about Brandon is that he is not going to cut any corners. He is absolutely obsessive, compulsive. And uh, I don't think he polishes every screw head when he takes it out like Henry says he does. But I can guarantee you that he will make sure everything is done properly before he buttons the camera up. And it's like the like you experienced with the show, with the straps on the, uh, the 2As and 3As. He's going back into one of mine to put new straps in just because he wasn't he wasn't comfortable with uh, shipping it out without the new straps. Fantastic. Yeah, and that was actually, that was following research of Henry. Um, I've read Henry's site up and down. I've I've read that entire site front to back multiple times now to get his opinions because he's very reluctant to give opinions, which is fine. I, I understand. Uh, Mark Hansen's been a great help as well, if anyone's yeah. familiar with Mark. Mark does some really great work, and he's been very, very helpful to me in this uh, this endeavor. Uh, through reading a lot of Henry's uh, opinions on these, and I, I'm sure his site has, uh, you know, it's it's probably got some age on some of the different articles that he's written. Um, his opinion on the post-war shutters was that most do not require uh, straps, assuming there's no fraying evident. Yeah, I, I'm just personally not convinced, and that's not a strike to Henry. I I I, I hold him as the highest standard of repair of these cameras. He is proven that time and time again, and I've never seen a bad review on that, man. But um, yeah, after having one fail, and from what I'm seeing, it, it usually is the, the stitching that fails, that fastens the straps in that situation. So it, 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 I'm going to warranty all work that I do. And the only way I can comfortably do that is to have touched every single thing. So I can't assume that 70-year-old silk fabric is, I, I just can't put my trust in that. So going through it, it's just the most comfortable thing for me to do. Uh, from uh, going forward. What is your turnaround? So you said you're backed up, but once you start a camera, like uh, on average, how long does it take? Um, as of right now, it's been make, taking me about two and a half weeks to complete a camera. Sadly, okay. I'm trying to get that down. Um, I've had, some, it's been the holidays and stuff like that. And that's, that's been holding me up a lot. I'm hoping to get that, that down quite a bit in solid working time. Assuming I can get to it every day, I can have a camera done in a week. Um, that's the fastest turnaround I've had. Um, the issue with it is setting the shutter tension on these is a slow process, and it's usually best done in stage in stages. So you, you add a little bit of a time. If you do it all at once, it's going to be a completely different animal in the morning. And uh, 
that's that's kind of what I've experienced. So just the shutter tensioning uh, process is kind of a uh, a multi day thing, honestly. In in a previous episode, um, I think it was Cheyenne Morrison um, we had who um, who's who would gladly you know want himself to be proven wrong on this one. It was mentioned that we predicted that in the next ten years that the contactses will be unserviceable because there'll be no one around that could actually do it at all. Are we actually now saying that there's a glimmer of hope and a bit of a light in the distance of, um, you know, Brandon, you've, you've sort of brought, are bringing that back to life now. Would you be working, are you planning on working with other people as well to try and sort of expand on this? Or is that uh, purely, you know, a project for yourself right now? I have been documenting everything fairly heavily. I've put out some short content videos of some of my processes, at least showing people what needs to be done, not necessarily the process of doing so. But even that knowledge is hard to find. I am 100% willing to openly come out for the community on my processes and what I think it needs to be done to get these properly working. Any repair technicians that are interested in help from me are more than willing to contact me. I know you had another uh, young care, uh, camera repairman um, that Paul had mentioned um, had a camera. Uh, did, Paul, didn't you send uh, a, a camera to somebody here recently? Ryan? Yes, I, I believe so. I, I, I had mentioned that I, I'm definitely willing to reach out to him with any knowledge that I've found over my research. Uh, to help him uh, get that ability. That's Ryan Jones at Pro Camera in Charlottesville. We had him on a previous episode. In the chat notes, uh, Aiden Dean is volunteering to learn. He wants to learn. So maybe you have found your apprentice here on episode 41 of the Camera Osity Podcast. I'll be definitely putting out some more content on the processes of doing of doing these. Um, a, a word of advice to anyone that is looking into these systems the sad reality is these old lubricants are tired and I don't ever recommend someone to get a pre-war camera that hasn't been serviced in the last 10 years and try to use it. Um, the issue is a lot of the like winding mechanism is very soft brass and without proper lubrication, it will eat itself alive. Like it'll absolutely destroy itself. I, I really don't think it's a good idea to try to force one of these into function. It will ruin it. It, it'll it'll 100% ruin it. But the main the main thing with servicing these cameras, both the pre and post war, is getting in there and properly lubricating the winding mechanism internally. And if you do any type of like lighter fluid dunking method and just trying to oil from the outside, it will ruin. It will 100% ruin that shutter. Yeah, I've heard that before many many times too. It's it's hard to believe that. In many cases, the brass becomes weaker than the dried lubricants. The Agfa Carat, the 36, the Caromat, uh, Ansco, which is the Cerebrage, it's actually one of my favorite cameras to use, is very famous for having a seized helicoid because the lube that Agfa used at that time was slightly different than what other people were using. And unfortunately, over the decades, like literally turns to cement. It's like green stuff, isn't it? Yes, it's like rock. It is rock hard. Rock, rock hard. hard. And you can actually break the focusing mechanism because it's weaker than the hardened lube is. So what you're describing there with the pre-war is probably applies to any camera. You know, you should, it, like we always make fun of the Japanese sellers or the eBay people who say, I did not test this camera. I don't know anything about cameras. Believe it or not, that's actually a good thing, assuming they're telling the truth. A lot of times when people say they don't know anything about cameras, they it's already broken and they're just lying. But if somebody truly just gets a camera from an estate, or a, uh, some old storage locker, and they truly haven't touched it, 
that's actually a good thing because it means that they probably haven't broken it worse before that's you get a hundred percent what i look for anytime yeah. i'm buying part cameras i look for very specific things certain screw heads that I, I can it's with signs of tampering with that enamel paint it'll break right off if it's been tampered with and uh, that's the type of things that i look out for 100 percent when i'm good trying to, to find bodies steve do you have a question yeah i'm gonna have to run off i'm gonna have to end here pretty quickly i want to throw out one just very broad brush question because we certainly have certain numbers of camp vintage camera systems to use I'd like to get the group's consensus as to why the contacts, why does that something that you're interested in versus a Leica versus the Nikon? What is it about the contacts cameras that you think is just really neat, unique? I love Zeiss glass. I'm a, I just love the Zeiss glass. Yeah. I like okay. them because they're different. You know, the, the, they're, no, this is not a knock on Leicas at all. You know, right. Anthony really recently just got a three F and he was super excited about it. And and I'm happy for him. But the reason I don't have a screw mount Leica is because I have so many of the Japanese copies that are at least equal and in some cases better. Mm-hmm. You know, the Leica formula is good. There's nothing wrong with it. You can shoot tremendous images with a Leica. But the contacts is just such a different camera. It is, it, to me, it's apples to oranges. You know, yes, the contacts was built to compete with Leica. But it is like saying a Toyota Corolla competes with a Mercedes or other way around. You can go to the grocery store and pick up some milk. You can take your kids to soccer practice exactly the same in those two cars. But using one over the other is a completely different experience. And for me, I respect Eric tremendously, but I do not agree with his opinion on the contacts one because I love that camera. <laughs> I, I will I will admit though, I had mine service. Radu Lasaru serviced it and it works perfectly. And I, that makes a huge difference. And um, I don't mean to hijack your question, Steve, but I wanted to ask if anybody shot a serviced contacts one, but I think I have my answer. But when you shoot, like what Paul was describing, a properly serviced and working contacts, it is an experience that you cannot recreate with any other camera. Not a Nikon, not a Canon, not a Footlander, not a Pentax. You know, it's truly something different. And and that's, for me, why I love them. Yeah, it it is an incredible experience. For for me, it was that I'd always been an SLR person. And when I got my first rangefinder. I got very lucky and that I was able to acquire a two a that was a museum quality looked like it had never been used, but had been recently serviced. And that camera, I just, I fell in love with it from the first roll of film I put through it. And to me, it's kind of interesting because I kind of blundered into a, a Leica three M or M three, sorry, after I got the contacts and I just, I never gelled with the Leica like I did with that context to me. And then going backwards to the Barnack, it, 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 it really intrigues me that the two and the three were put out as competition to the Barnack Leicas. Cause it's like somebody went in a time machine and went back and did this like primitive Barnack versus the science fiction contacts, because they just feel so much more advanced than what that Barnack Leica feels like the, even the three F that I just bought just feels very primitive compared to the contacts. And then the, 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 the two A that I had once I started shooting with it, I think that I gelled with that camera with its ergonomics. It just feels like an extension of my finger and of my eye. I love the focusing wheel with the finger. I love the I love the advance. I love everything about it. It just to me, it's the most natural shooting camera that I have. And luckily, having one that had been serviced, there is a precision and a smoothness to that camera 
that that you know when you talk about this i know we, we had some going back and forth about the soviet clones to me even a really nice kiev that can be comparable feels like a a porsche 914 versus getting a true carrera you know it just it, it's like it's always just going to feel rougher and looser and heavier and less precise and it may have the same appearance but they're not the same cameras there's not there's not a substitute you know it's not a straight analog and and i just it's it's a rare camera because you think about that context i mean it continued after the leica m cameras were introduced and i still think that it's comparable to an m you know i i absolutely believe that my 2a is is a comparable camera as far as you know between the lenses and the ergonomics of that camera uh you know it stands up to a camera that was designed 30 years after this camera was first introduced. The build quality is really a joy. The, the build quality is just unbelievable. You get one of these in your hands and you can just, it, you feel like you stole it for the prices that these are going for. Yeah. You, you really do. You got to remember too, Zeiss was one of the biggest optics companies in the world when they designed that camera. They had resources that Lights did not. I mean, Lights was a microscope company, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to shed on them or nothing because they made good stuff. And, and the Leica was a good camera. I mean, honestly, Oscar Barnack's greatest asset for the Leica is that he didn't overcomplicate it. And that's why they sold as well as they did, because the Leica is a much simpler camera. And that, from a business standpoint, turned out to be the right move. Because if, if we're just looking at sales, the contacts paled in comparison to the Leica, mm -hmm. right? From a user standpoint, though, they just, they have a different feel to it. Um, in fact, like literally today, I'm working on a review for the Icarx 35CS. This is uh, an SLR from 1968. So this is a camera made more than 30 years after the Context 2 and 3 were built. But this camera, despite being three decades newer, is heavy. It is solid as a rock. The chrome is silk smooth. You know, there's very little plastic on it. The sound of the shutter firing it just has a reassuring, just, I don't know how to describe it. Like camera guys know what I'm talking about though. It just, this feels like a quality camera. If I had never seen another camera before in my life and you handed this to me and I used it, I would immediately know this thing was quality. And that's something that Zeiss put into almost everything they did. You know, the contacts itself had every feature they could think of, you know, the wider range finder base, the, the, the further apart the range finder windows are, the more accurate it can be. Being a prism meant that back then it was more dependable. The bayonet mount was considered to be not only more secure, but also faster to change and take off. The contacts, even the contacts one had a completely removable back, you know, whereas the, the Leicas were bottom loaded. Just the massive amount of resources that Zeiss had when building that camera, the amount of quality and effort and the long list of features. And that doesn't even begin to talk about the lenses. You know, Carl Zeiss yeah. created the Tessar. They created the Planar. They created the Sonar. Maybe with the exception of Fotlander, there wasn't anybody even close. You know, you look at even early Bausch and Lum and Wollensack American lenses, a lot of those are based off of German design. Another thing they did, which was just completely out there, in the early 20th century, Zeiss would actually outsource their designs to be built by other optics companies. So like you can get an early folding Kodak. I have one, a, a number one uh, autographic Kodak. It's got a Bausch and Lomb 
Zeiss Lance. And it's like, well, how, what, what is that? What's a Bausch and Lomb Zeiss Lance? Well, it's a Zeiss Lance built to Zeiss specifications, but by Bausch and Lomb. I think it was Ross or um, Cook. One, one of the British manufacturers also made Zeiss lenses too. So their quality was so good, but they allowed other people to make things to their specifications. And that's another way in which Zeiss was able to expand their brand. So by the 30s, to have any camera with a Zeiss lens on it was was great. And keep in mind, at the time, you know, this doesn't relate to the context, but Zeiss also owned Deckel, who made the Comper shutter, and they also owned Gauthier. I'm, I'm butchering that, but they made the Prontor shutter. So the number one and number two most popular German leaf shutters were both owned by Zeiss. You know, so they're just the incredible amount of resources they had when they built that camera is, is just is, is how they were able to do what they were able to do. And, and Brandon, I'm, I'm speaking for you here, but, you know, opening these things up, you mentioned earlier, it's a joy. It's a joy to work on. It's unbelievable. It's just an absolute masterpiece in mechanical engineering. Um, yeah. You know, you know the big thing with the, the complications of the pre-war shutters was just avoiding all the Leica patents. There's nothing, there's nothing else like this. It's, it's absolutely incredible to see it in action. I, I have a lot of videos posted. I think that I already have one on the Camerosity um, group. If someone wants to look back, I do have uh, some, some different uh, videos of this, this shutter actually uh, actuating. The, the cool thing is the, the shutter unit on the pre-war cameras specifically, it removes as a whole unit. You, you can actually remove just the shutter assembly from from the camera. It almost like it's almost as if the camera comes apart in like two pieces. And uh, yeah, this will fire. Uh, technically, the rear plate is part of the function, uh, a functional part of the shutter as it uh, it keeps tension on this uh, this traveling shutter. But this will fire, and I I think that's pretty neat to see the way they designed that. Eric, you were holding up a lens just now. What what were you holding up? That was a Ross uh, in context mount, a three inch. I found it in the Netherlands, bought it, and it's absolutely fantastic. To go a little bit further, for me, shooting a context, besides the fact that it's light, it's small, it works, it's mechanical, it's beautiful, and I like it. For me, it's a graph. You know, it's hard, I think, even for me, you know, any of us to truly understand how big Zeiss was. You know, this is a company that existed since the like mid-1800s. I mean, they had their hands in everything. In fact, I will offer this panel here uh, a bit of trivia. See if Eric knows the answer to this. The Zeiss Icon Contacts came out in 32, okay? That was the first Contacts camera. However, they made a product called the Contacts in 1926. Zeiss Icon Contacts, spelled the exact same way, C-O-N-T-A-X. What was it? Does anybody know? I saw this somewhere. It it's was on my something, site. It was something very... Oh, that's probably where I saw it then. It was something very <laughs> odd. I don't know. Want to take a wild guess? I want to say it was like a toilet paper dispenser or something <laughs> like that. It was, it was really weird. That's completely wrong, but it's it's equally wrong to what it really is. Uh, it was actually an automobile turn signal. Yeah, they okay. made an automobile turn signal that you would mount on like the hood of your car before cars had turn signals like we think of slrs with an instant return mirror like that's not a feature but there was a time when slrs did not have instant return mirrors well cars at one point in time did not have turn signals so size icon produced this thing called the contacts which was this big large circle and it had like a solenoid with a big arrow and under when the solenoid was off it pointed up 
but when you activated it in one direction, it would spin this way to indicate you were turning left. And when you activate it another way, it would, would rotate the other direction facing and it, it lit up too. So there actually is a size icon contacts automobile signal. I have a picture of one on my website. If you actually dig deep on Google, you can find some early like 20s automobiles with this thing installed. But here's where it gets really, really interesting. Zeiss didn't create this design. They produced it in 1926 after the Zeiss Icon merger of all the, the four previous companies. The company that made it before them was Contessa Nettle. So Contessa that, Nettle, yeah. that contacts turn signal and the name, it was still called Contacts, was designed by Contessa Nettle. And Brandon, do you know who worked at Contessa Nettle that came up with that, that name? I don't. Dr. August Nagel. Oh. So Dr. August Nagel, who eventually made like the retina for Kodak, invented really? the first Contacts. Oh, wow. Clearly the products have nothing in common, <laughs> but- that's one, that's one I'll probably never repair. <laughs> <laughs> it would not be wrong for you to say that August Nagel made the first Contacts. You, you would be telling the truth. I'll have to post that in the historical society and go. see if I can get Take banned this. as well. <laughs> <laughs> we both want one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a Contessa Nettle tripod right here, actually. Eric, if I can ask you a, a heretics question. Sure. On my two-way, I've got the, the heavy uh, Sonar 50 1.5. It's pre-war. And then on the 3A, I've got the super light aluminum Sonar 52. Yeah, I saw that. It was it was on the wrong camera. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as as far as the lenses go, I actually prefer the F2. I do too. Uh, it's very hard to find a 1.5 that's absolutely gorgeous. It's the way it is. You have to buy a lot of them and and see whatever is the one that you want. I have a lot of Zeiss uh, 50 mils that I basically, the reason I don't sell them is because they are not great. And I just don't want to sell them to anybody because it's, it's not done. You know, it's, it's not my reputation. I, I do not sell retail at all. I only sell wholesale. So I'll take one third of the price and, and, and dump them into a wholesale environment. To find a 1.5 that's absolutely gorgeous will take you five, six lenses to just touch on the Russian things, or better say, the Soviet production, it took me 20 Jupiter 3 lenses, which is the 50 mil 1.5, to find one good one. I kept that one. The other ones were sold uh, wholesale. Uh, it's here. It's absolutely amazing. This is a Jupiter 3 that I kept after I bought 20 of them, and this is the one I kept. <laughs> so, you know... What else I wanted to show you is this famous, if you like Zeiss glass, if you can find this, buy it. This is the Amadeo adapter. Ah, Paul's a fan of those. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've seen them. Yeah, I have that for, for Sony and for uh, Fuji. That one. And the those Leica the M. Yeah, those fantastic. are the best ones you can get. Yeah. Which one is that, Eric? Is it to, to fit what camera? It's context to Leica. Okay. And it's coupled. Yes. If I had been smart, that's what I would have bought. So I could have, then I would only needed one adapter to use it on three cameras. But yeah, I was very lucky years ago to speak with him. Uh, he was still in Venezuela at the time. Uh, and he sent me this. He said, you know, check it out. And he's a very nice guy. And he said, you know, Eric, just check it out and tell me what you think. And then I got it in and uh, I said, it's great. You know, how, how many more can you get? Because there's a lot of people who would like to have one. I know there's initiatives in Asia to uh, 
to produce more. I've used this uh, professionally for reportage work uh, in the Netherlands uh, with, a, with a 50 mil on it. It's absolutely fantastic, but so hard to get nowadays. And I'm always looking because I'm scared that when this one doesn't work, <laughs> I only have one. Eric Amadeo now is in Florida. I know and he is, yeah. He is making them again. In Venezuela, he was having problems. His, his workers were having trouble getting food even when the economy yes. was in bad shape. Uh, I'm in touch with him fairly regularly. Uh, he's still making them, though they are very they're very hard to get, as you say. Absolutely. And, and you know, we are here in Europe and, and, and you all know, or most of you will know that we have enormous tax problems because when I buy something in the U.S., I pay 40, 50 percent in taxes just to get it in. You know, and I'm not talking about new stuff. I'm talking about, you know, let's say a, a viewfinder that cost me one hundred and twenty dollars. I will pay one hundred and twenty dollars just in tax to get it here. That is if it arrives at all. I've been trying to to find out how, what we can do to, to have a better arrangement. I have not found any solutions for the moment, but these Amadeo adapters are absolutely fantastic because I use my contact mount lenses on my Leica. On a slightly related topic um, in terms of mounting lenses, is it possible to swap lenses between contacts and Nikon S-mount cameras? Oh yeah, I've seen that question. So is that the case? Can you do that? It's um, most people, it, it's it's an argumentative topic. The focal range is different between those mounts. A lot of people will say you can get away with as wide as a 50. A lot of people say don't go any uh, narrower than a 35 millimeter. Um, the focal range is uh, issue becomes prevalent and it can have some issues focusing so like typically most people would recommend to avoid the uh, 85s and like the 135s uh, now something interesting nikon actually did produce a uh, designated contacts they, they did make those lenses for contacts mount and uh, you can actually a lot of times the, the uh, people don't notice that when they sell them and you can actually get like a contacts mount lens oh, if wow. you might be right. trying to get one for your Nikon. It's something to look out for for anyone that's in either system. Yeah. Nippon Kungaku made Nikkors at 85 millimeter and longer in contacts mount. And the way to tell the difference is there'll be a C imprinted on the side of the lens. It's not on the beauty ring up front. It's like it's like engraved yeah. into the side. So they didn't do it for the 50s or the 35s because like you said, depth of field takes care of the difference. In fact, Anthony, you bought one of my Nikkor 35 millimeter lenses and shot it on your contacts, right? Absolutely. Worked perfectly fine. Worked perfectly fine. Yeah. So it's it's a subtle difference between the, the design of the lenses. They do focus a little bit differently. If um, And let me backtrack a little bit. You can still use the telephotos interchangeably at infinity. That's not a problem. The longer the lens, the closer you focus, the more off it will be. Let's say you had a contacts and you wanted to shoot a telephoto lens and you could only get your hands on a Nikkor 135. You could physically mount it, focus it to infinity, shoot with your heart's content, and all your images are going to come out fine. But if you start to focus that thing down, it's your, your images are going to come out of focus. So, but at 50 and wider, it really, may, I mean, maybe, maybe if you tried mounting the 51.1 Nikkor lens on a, a contacts and did a close up, yeah, you're going to miss focus on that too. But for most people, you stop that lens down a little bit. 
what tiny infinitesimal difference there would be, depth of field is going to take care of that. That's a good question. I'm going to have to drop off real quick. I would love to get Brandon's website address, though. Um, I don't actually have a website. I use a Facebook page at the moment. I'm working. I'm currently working on getting a website page live. I will go ahead and uh, be tagging uh, my page, if that's okay with everyone here on the Camerosity podcast, right after this. Sure. Uh, right after this. Yeah. And uh, that, that'll let everyone uh, have a line of contact for me. Yeah. Steve, we'll include it in the show notes. Brandon's already posting in our group. So that information is going to become available. Yes. Uh, you heard it here, folks. Camerosity podcast is the home of Brandon Monroe's contact service. <laughs> well, again, thanks, everybody. Again, I'll, I'll be back yeah. at some point. Thank you, Alex, for turning me on to this. And really, for all you who are getting involved in this uh, crazy hobby of this, uh, all these crazy cameras, you know, my head off to you. You know, we definitely need people to carry this on. We have Jess Ibarra. We have a lot of for learning and it's, it's awesome. Thanks everybody. Thanks for hey, talking to you, Steve. Bye-bye. We're sort of hitting the 90 minute mark at the moment. Uh, be interesting before we sort of go on to things like lightning rounds, etc. Um, can I get everybody to just hold up their right hand? I want to see how many contacts claws we have here, people that are permanent. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> because we haven't actually touched on the contacts claw discussion and what that is. To, to help people uh, listening, the contacts claw is how you actually hold a contacts or a Kiev 4 um, or a um, Nikon S uh, camera. The pre-war Pre-war ones because right. the, the, the actual rangefinder window is so far to the right that if you hold the camera normally as you would a lot of other rangefinders you'll actually cover the window and not be able to focus so that's one of the and and i have to sort of come clean here is i've never actually even held a contacts camera uh, rangefinder so um i feel like i'm missing out here you really you really are you need to make that happen <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Theo's going to lose his camerosity pay for the second episode in a row now. So, <laughs> so but I have, um, I have played around with a Kiev 4 and I, I must admit, I didn't find that natural compared um, to using other rangefinders, probably because I've used the other rangefinders more. Yeah. Uh, how, how do people find holding the contacts? It becomes a second nature. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like the very first time you pick it up, you're like, crap, I can't see the rangefinder pitch. Oh yeah, that's why. I mean, it's, it is definitely not intuitive <laughs> the first time you pick it up, but it's literally just a difference of moving one finger a little bit lower down. Eric has a post-war. It's not quite as bad on the post-wars because the rangefinder window is closer to the lens mount, but on the pre-wars and the Kievs, the rangefinder window is almost all the way to the extreme edge of the camera. So as long as you arrange your right hand fingers in a way where you could hit the shutter release without blocking the window, oh, there you go. So what Eric's doing, he has his index finger on the shutter release, and then his other three fingers are bent kind of down, gripping the body. There's something interesting there to look at that what Eric's doing there. And it's something that I do find people mistake when they're doing the contact strip. Notice his, uh, his finger placement on the shutter button. He's he's going to be depressing it with the knuck with the with the crease of the knuckle, not the tip of his finger. The shutter's temperamental if you use the tip of your finger. Well seen, well seen. Very good. Uh, Very yes, good. Easter egg. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to note, and it's 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 highlighted in all the document, all the official documentation. Yeah, you actually want to. Paul's checking it out now. Yeah, there you go. So you kind of rest your finger a little bit lengthwise on that large circle yeah, yeah. press down. Okay. 
You just press the side of your yeah. finger rather than the tip. Okay. Yes. Okay. If, you, if you use the tip of your finger, it actually can cause the shutter to be temperamental sometimes and catch. So, Eric, when you're shooting yours, do you use the fine focus wheel at all, or did you just focus the lens directly? I focus it by my left hand. Okay. Absolutely. For people who do try to use the fine focus wheel, I wonder if, and maybe this could be a question for the group, do you just move your shutter release finger forward to move it? Or do you attempt to have your middle finger doing that? I use the middle finger. Middle finger. So yeah, got to yeah, follow the manual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what they want. That's what they wanted. The Germans did it right. They knew what they were doing. You got yeah. to use that middle finger. So re real quick, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this because I, I do need to defend the Kievs just a tiny bit. Um, we all know that there were tons and tons of copies of the Leicas made. The Feds and the Zorkies were true copies. They, they took a Leica, they looked at it, they reverse engineered it, and then they had children build it, right? The quality of a, of a Soviet Leica, it is truly a copy. It's not the same. There are machining differences. The parts were made to different tolerances, lots of different, the quality just doesn't compare. However, uh, the story goes for anybody who's not familiar, I, I won't repeat all of it, but essentially after the war, the Soviet Union moved into what would become East Germany, which is where Dresden is, which is where the contacts were made. And they essentially targeted the Zeiss's plant and as for war reparations. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to take as much of the German optics industry, because remember, Dresden was where most of it was at. Pre-war, there was some stuff out west. By and large, the heart of the German camera industry was in Dresden and the Dresden area. And the Soviet got control over all of that. Thankfully, a lot of the Zeiss factories were not completely obliterated. So the Soviet Union basically confiscated tons of spare parts, the machinery. They even took some of the head designers and put them on a train and transferred them down to Ukraine, to Kiev, where they wanted to build their own premium camera. Because... Even back then, the Contax was considered the top dog. The Leica was the more consumer-oriented camera. The, the Contax was the best of the best, and that's what the Soviets wanted. Hey, we shot Normandy. <laughs> the original Kievs were made up of spare Contax parts. The lenses were spare. A lot of it was shot glass. Uh, that the lens mounts, they made a ton of lens mounts that were used in those early cameras. In fact, if you get an early Kiev camera and disassemble it and take the faceplate off and flip it upside down, you can still see the original contacts logo stamped in the metal that they just used. They either sanded it down or used some kind of filler. I don't know exactly how they did it. But the, the earliest Kievs are actual contacts parts just put together. Now, you could argue. They weren't as skilled as assembling as maybe the Germans were, and that's probably true. But for the most part, early Kievs are contacts. They're made of the same German-built parts, the same German lenses. It, you can debate on the quality of them still, but it's, it's, it's important to differentiate between the Feds and the Zorkis, which were truly a copy, a lower quality copy, whereas the Kievs were a continuation a Soviet yeah. continuation of those German cameras. And yes, the quality did dip. Later contacts as they ran out, of, or I'm sorry, later Kievs, as they ran out of those original parts and had to start manufacturing things themselves, the Soviet Union was not good about uh, investing money into new machinery. So they, they reused those machines, those lathes, those 
whatever parts they needed to make. They used them far beyond their usable lifespan. Those original technicians died off. So quality control by the 70s and even 80s when the Kievs were still made were just downright atrocious. So of course those do not compare, but you get an early fifties, even the, you know, I think they, they, they made them in 49. I could be wrong on that, but the, the earliest Kievs were very good. And you get a good Kiev, one that has been serviced. It's Eric, plug your ears for a second there. Just plug them. It's 95, 96% of the quality of a contacts. They're just not all like that. So, you know, if you have a Kiev four and it works great and you're really, really happy with it, keep using it. They're, they're, they're great too. You know, they're just, they're not the originals though. And one last bit of trivia. Sorry. I have so much I want to say for a very, very short period of time after the uh, Soviets confiscated the Zeiss Icon factory and transferred everything down. They did not transfer all the employees. They just transferred some of the like head guys, but they basically left uh, the whole assembly team and all these guys behind in Dresden um, with literally nothing to do. They went down to Jena, which is also in East Germany, which is where the lenses were made. And they were basically told to do something, right? so they, the only thing they knew how to do was build contacts. So for a very short period of time, I think 47, maybe 48, um, I, I didn't memorize the article, but um, they actually reproduced the contacts too in Jena after the war. So genuine German made contacts twos after the war do exist. They're referred yep. to as Jena contacts. They're incredibly rare. Supposedly, there's only two ways to tell them apart. You have to look inside, which if you ever come across a Contacts 2 brand that looks weird on the inside, it might be a Yena. The the uh, the cold shoe is actually marked as well. Is it really? Yes. I did not know that. It's a really good tell. You'll you'll see it on the cold shoe. It'll okay. say it'll it'll say yeah uh, Yena on it. And then the only other way to tell, and unfortunately this isn't good because it's on the lens and you could just swap lenses. But the the kit lens that came with that camera, the Yena Contacts, was a, a more modern version of the Sonar F2 with a modern T coating that the uh, the pre wars did not have. So that's unfortunately not a good tell because, like I said, you could just swap them. But yeah. if you if you had a true Yena Contacts. Internally, there are some revisions. Uh, Brandon, you said the shoe is marked differently and yes. it'll have a slightly different lens too. They're incredibly rare. Unfortunately, they're very easy to fake. So if you do see something claimed to be a Yena contacts, unless it's been verified by someone like Henry or Mark or hopefully Brandon or, or Eric um, or somebody who truly can can vouch for it, I, I would not consider it to be to be genuine. I wanted to um, go back on the Kievs. I think that's a really valuable point for anyone that's like listening to this that, that's listening to this podcast. Particularly, um, you're going to notice that the pre-war. If you're interested in the pre-war cameras, you're going to look at Kievs at some point. Uh, the pre-wars are getting very difficult to find. Um, I've I've noticed that. I'm always on the lookout just for like parts sake on on my end and it's it's uh it's getting pretty difficult to find them in in any reasonable condition um if you are interested in kiev cameras um like you said that uh you know they use the same tooling they use a lot of the same parts on the earlier cameras a lot of your uh cyrillic text kievs you're gonna in the in the russian text uh those are typically earlier cameras and uh, what you're gonna notice on that is the advanced sprocket is going to be this matte uh, silver. It's going to be a matte silver on the advanced sprocket when you open up the back of the camera. So if you take off the rear cover plate, um, 
that's going to almost always signify an early shutter, which is what you want when you're looking at a Kiev. Later years, uh, the mid years, they went to like an anodized looking yellowish uh, advanced sprocket. And that's uh, a point in which quality started dropping. And then the terrible quality to always avoid, notably on the Kievs, is anytime you see a black advanced sprocket. Do not get those cameras. They're very terrible quality, and you're almost always going to get a lemon. So that's a big thing to look out for as a good tell, just considering the interchangeability of this shutter. Even a early Cyrillic text Kiev may may have a later shutter in it. So that advanced sprocket is a good sign. It is, it's right. hard to get out of there. So that's a good thing to look at. And I would encourage anybody who's listening, you know, maybe you're just getting into film and you're like, these guys are nuts. Like, I'm not going to spend two, three, four hundred dollars on these ancient cameras. But I like what they're saying. If you want to try out a Kiev and you can find one that works, great. It is an accurate representation of what the context is like. The Jupiter yes. 8 lenses that are found in almost all those kids are actually really good. Looking at the feds, you know, the, the the Russians really did attempt in most cases to improve upon designs. And a very notable thing on the Kiev cameras is they used a thicker ribbon strap. It's not usable in the contacts repairs. I have some Arsenal ribbon in the event that I find an early Kiev to repair, but that's only for that case. I can't use that in my contacts repairs. And it is beneficial. You'll notice that most Kievs don't have a failed ribbon issue. And it's because of that thicker ribbon that they used in construction. It's 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 a it was definitely an improvement in that sense. It might have been an accidental improvement, but it was an improvement. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't like to shit on the, the Soviet cameras just for the sake of doing it because it's just the quality control is so inconsistent. That's really the biggest issue for me. You get a good one, if it works. You're going to get some great images out of those out of those um, Jupiters. And if let's say that's your gateway into getting a real thing, then great. You know, you had you had a training contacts. I might add the most informed uh, individual on in this is the, the recently passed Larry Gubis. Larry wrote a book on Zeiss contacts on Zeiss photographic material uh, years ago. It's very hard to find. I, I had the pleasure and the honor to talk with Larry uh, multiple times. Because of my uh, addiction to Zeiss LTM class, uh, there was another individual in the Netherlands that we made a list of lenses, of serial numbers, etc. Kiev cameras are great. In fact, my 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 daughter, who's now 18 and just left for you know university, uh, she shoots one, and uh, she does a great job. Now, when she has two or three pictures, she's very happy. But it, it's a gateway. It, it's $50, $60, So it's it's a Christmas present. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's doable. They made a ton of those. They're oh, easy yeah. to find for cheap. Yeah. And you can find them in the United States too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And you, you don't need to buy 20 Jupiter 3 lenses and blah, blah, blah. Now, I, I am now getting older, so it's a little bit different. But for me... The Kievs that you were talking about, Mike, and you're very right. The Russians came in into, into uh, Jena uh, around about 44. That's when things went berserk, basically. All kinds of lenses came out and all kinds of adaptations and, and all kinds of stuff was happening. These people were, you know, they were hungry. They didn't have food. These were bad times. Now, the idea that shot glass and Zeiss glass is in, in, in the early Jupiters. Yes, they're not called Jupiters. They're called Zorki lenses, uh, ZK, to be, to be very fair. But very, very few of them. 
That doesn't mean that the Kiev cameras with the Jupiter 3 that was redesigned in 1952 um, were not, not good enough. No, they were, they were very good. So I agree 100% with you on the Kiev cameras where it is a, it's a way to get into the contact system for people that don't want to, you know, take yeah. three, four hundred dollars. It was my introduction. I would recommend it. I would definitely recommend oh, doing that. If, if you the, the problem that I'm seeing is if you want a contacts, you're probably not going to find a working one. So you're going to going to have to go through that repair process and everything. So, it, you know, at that point with that investment, you're really you really are better off to at least try a Kiev to see if you like the system. Absolutely. One last thing I'll, I'll say and I'll stop talking about it. But even with what's going on over there, there are still many excellent Ukrainian sellers that are still selling things. Their shipping times are very reasonable. Their costs are reasonable. And I haven't heard a single story. Of, and I talked to a lot of people of somebody who's ordered something from Ukraine, usually through eBay and had any problems receiving it, you know, and, and Absolutely. You, can, you can get them. There's, there's many excellent men and women in that country mm -hmm. that are still selling things. Lithuania, I've gotten stuff from Lithuania too. Um, at some point, hopefully this, you know, atrocity ends. I know that there's many Russian sellers that have nothing to do with what's going on who love cameras. And prior to last year, uh, there were many excellent Russian sellers too. We all know that Oleg recently relocated yep. out of the country. He's in. He's set up his shop at OK Cameras again. I know he's having some trouble with PayPal. But it, in our hobby, in the world of cameras, there are excellent people over there that are that have access to these things that you can get them for here even in the united states for very i can i can get something from ukraine for cheaper than i can get it from canada sometimes here yes, here 100%, unreal 100 can i can i make just a a, a quick observation then then i want to do a, a quick lightning round while we have sure. everybody here the, the observation is is that we didn't even touch upon the zeiss icon folders and the super icontas which is i know is another passion of eric's <laughs> and mine and Hopefully, once you get my box with all of the Super Icontas, yours. So uh, I hope that we could reconvene with uh, a focus on the Super Icontas and maybe the uh, some of the other folders. Anthony, it took two whole episodes for us to cover Pentax. Well, then there's this. Then there's the SLRs because we have to yeah, go through, from the Contraflex. Right you know, all the way through to the Aria. I'm willing to not be involved on that one. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a dozen Zeiss Icon episodes and probably still not cover anything. But yeah, absolutely. That well is very, very deep. And, uh, and anybody listening now, I would love to speak to some more Zeiss experts. Anthony knows my passion for the Super Contest. Now, I might be having problems with my Context Rangefinder addiction, but my Zyzikanta thing is worse. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I'm absolutely with you on that. Okay, I, I can even join in that one. I've got, um, I've got multiple iterations of nine different models now. So it's, uh, it's dangerous. We are on the same level there, Anthony. We should yeah. do a podcast just by ourselves, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> Anyone that's um, questioning uh, getting into the contacts rangefinder system, if you're just interested in Zeiss in general, I would personally just skip that whole system and just get a Contessa 35. <laughs> <laughs> you can't beat it. It's the best value in the world. I, I think this is just the greatest camera for the money there is. And it's like walking around and playing with a bop it because you get to wind it from the bottom and talk.
Oh, Brandon's frozen. Brandon just locked up on us. He convinced me because I had two contests at 35s. And I've got one of them. You Anthony sold one, Anthony. one of them. Yeah. And the second one isn't for sale. <laughs> I'm going to lose credit. I don't like them that much. <laughs> But anyway, go ahead. Let's do lightning round. So lightning round sort of based on the whole topic of the show, which was the fact that that contacts were long considered like almost too unrepairable to uh, continue on as a viable shooter. Uh, so the, the, the lightning round question is, is there another camera that you have that cannot be repaired that you would love to see another Brandon crop up and say, suddenly I can repair that. So what is, what is the camera that you have that at this moment is unshootable, that it's just waiting for the uh, next young gun to come out and say, I have cracked that nut and can fix that camera for you? Potaflex. The, the TLR. I wish I knew if it worked. Here's mine. What's that, Mike? The Ektra. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Ektra. This is, honestly, in many ways, this is a Kodak Contacts. It's got a really wide rangefinder base. It has a very unique uh, lens mount. It's kind of like a breech lock, I guess. It's not really a bayonet, but it's got interchangeable magazine backs. It's got a zoomable viewfinder, which is really cool. Like for a 1940s camera, when you look through the viewfinder and spin a wheel, the viewfinder itself actually zooms in and changes focal lengths anywhere from 50 millimeter all the way to 254. Uh, there's an adjustable diopter for the rangefinder. It's got an optical rangefinder, speeds from one to 1,000. They're just not very reliable. It was an uh, overly ambitious design by Kodak that when they work, which this one does, Frank Marshman fixed this one. I love shooting it. I would love to have more of these. I would love to see more of them working because they have excellent lenses, but almost nobody will touch these anymore. Eric's going for the SL2 Lycoplex. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Mine work, but it's hard to get them. And I have many of them. Uh, fantastic camera. The Lycoplex, the first one, the SL, and the SL2, absolutely fantastic. The R62, sure, it's repairable, but okay. But this one is, I had one service. It cost me $450 without taxes and without shipping. So, you know, that's that's a lot of, lot of money. And he doesn't do it anymore. That camera is considered to be possibly the best SLR ever made. Absolutely, and I agree. It's fantastic. Alex, what's your fantasy camera to get fixed now? You know, sadly, all of my cameras work, but what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but 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 when it does go, the uh, Olympus Stylus Epic. I mean, granted, it's a point and shoot, but man, some of the some of my favorite images have come out of that. Just that I've been able to capture the, the lens, everything. That whole generation of plastic point and shoots all belong in the exact same category of unrepairable. So, you know, you, you could apply that to MJU, to the context, whatever it's called, all those electronic cameras. It's a good answer, though. I was expecting to hear the point and shoots. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, would you would you be able to guess mine? That you want to get working? It should be. It should be fairly obvious. I'm, I'm, I'm missing something here. Is it the context one? It is. Yeah. The uh, the issue I'm having is uh, the sacrificial parts bodies that are so easy to come by on the post wars aren't quite as cheap when you start looking at contacts once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's very hard to get a hold of. I don't know if he'd even be willing to talk to you, but Radu knows how to do it. And he's in Florida. So you oh, know, yeah. it's plausible he might have some spare parts. I mean, when you do talk to him, he's very nice. 
He's, I mean, Paul can vouch. He's very hard to get a hold of lately. He's about three, three hours south of me. I can just show up on the front door and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think Mike, Mike sent me the contacts ones are, are, from what I understand, just totally different from the rest of them. I mean, they just changed quite. They simplified quite a bit. Brandon, you mentioned that the post-war shutters are simplified from the pre-war contacts oh, yes. two and threes, but the yes, contacts completely. two and threes were simplified from the contacts one. What Radio told me is that the ribbons for the contacts ones. Can, you cannot use any other ribbons for them. So oh, yeah. you, you talked about the Soviets using a different ribbon. Well, you can't use even like what you have from Aki Asahi. I wonder if that's his, I because I, I, I've looked into that shutter a little bit. And the, the big issue with the with the two is I, I mentioned the friction system where it rides that ribbon and it actually relies on a certain amount of friction to, to properly actuate the shutter. I have to modify the uh, friction clutches on the contacts too because the uh, Aki Asahi ribbons are thinner and it does actually cause it to fault um, okay. it will not funk it does not function properly uh, initially it takes a lot of finesse and modification on my end to get that to get that proper friction down uh, I'm curious because what I've I've found in this repair uh, in, in my research is a lot of people are unwilling to accept that compromise which is understandable. I think a lot of people are really locked into it needs to be original or it needs to function as originally intended. I have to make some compromises there to get those to get the the intended result. And I'm wondering if it might be that situation. I don't know. That's, that I'd be curious. Another thing that I do know is different because he had to replace it on mine is apparently uh, the coupling between the rangefinder and the the lens mount. There's actually a nylon cord. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. He actually showed me a picture of mine and it, although it hadn't broken, you could see like fibers were just sticking out of it. He goes, really? This is one more tug away from just snapping. He goes, so you need to replace it. So I have no idea what he used. Mm -hmm. I don't know where he got it from, but he said he replaced it and I could vouch. I've shot about maybe six rolls of film through that camera since I got it back. And in addition to everything, every other piece of praise I could give for it, the rangefinder is perfectly accurate. So yeah, yeah honestly, I, I come down to visit Paul on occasion. I've gone down to the Cincinnati shows a couple of times. So if in the future I'm headed down that way, if you want to stop on the show, I'll bring you my contacts when at least you can play with it for a little while. I would love to have an experience with one. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely would love to have one in my display case. Um, anyone that's uh, listening here that might be uh, of the hopes that I would get into that system for repairs <laughs> i would not hold out i think the context uh the the, the normal two and uh two a's and three a's i think those are going to keep me a little too busy honestly to be able <laughs> to make that me. investment i don't think i think that's the time. reality i don't i don't think i'll have time either yeah. um and i have read that the uh the context one the tension adjustment is uh the the metal used in that is susceptible to failing and it can render the entire body uh almost useless um, after so many adjustments, I, I've read that that it can it can fail uh, catastrophically. Um, so that's just something that I've seen in my small research that I've done with that shutter. Um, it's really intimidating, I guess you could say. <laughs> Brandon, I, I will I will get you in contact with some people here in Europe that are pretty okay with the context one. The, f the fact that I am not shooting it is one thing, but there's people shooting it, and and um, I know the people that are repairing them. Oh, yeah. They're very secret because they don't want other people to know that they're repairing them because they're going to get 500 cameras in, in the next two weeks. You know what I mean? Yeah. So 
I'll I'll contact you after the show and uh, and let you know. Yeah, it'd be it'd be at least nice to have that connection in the in the uh, situation down the road where I find myself able to do so. Definitely, a lot of post-war cameras are going to be coming my way. <laughs> Absolutely, but then at least you have one for yourself. No, definitely, I want a working one, one hundred percent. I'm very jealous every time Mike brags about his. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know the feeling. Very, <laughs> very jealous. I won't very. lie. I've, I've read we, that. We article. are jealous. We, we're jealous people. You know. <laughs> He did it again. He did it again. Theo, what's your camera, Theo? It's a bit of an unfair question because I've got Jess here. She'll actually attempt at fixing anything. So um, there's not much that she won't attempt. But um, one thing that everybody has turned their nose off, and I'm not sure it's worth anybody getting into it, is the pear trees. Um, you take a pear tree into a service person and they'll sob momentarily and then tell you to go away because they they just don't work <laughs> my my choice is is actually the most modest choice on here and i just want to find one person that will replace the bellows on kodak folding cameras the monitor my i've got a monitor i've got the monitor with the uh, yeah. with the specialist mat lens and it's basically a folding metalist but boy the the, the uh the Kodak bellows were horrible. They are all just disintegrating. You can't put enough liquid uh, electrical tape on them to keep them patched. Uh, or if you do, they're just permanently erected because you can't fold them back yeah. again. And uh, and they're apparently riveted on in a way that it's very difficult to change the bellows. Mike's holding yep. up two Duo 620s. Super 620s. Yeah, there's. they made less than 800 of them. I have two right here. They both have pinholes. Yeah. So it's the same, it's the exact same problem you describe, Anthony. This, despite the effort they put into making these great cameras, they did not use the leather bellows like Nagel did. And so I just want one person that'll say, yes, I can change the bellows and your Kodak monitor. And I just, I don't think it's ever going to happen. There's a, a Chinese Etsy store that will uh, manufacture bellows to a desired size. But that's so not that the problem. Something that's, to look the into. problem's not getting the bellows. It's getting somebody who will install it because they're riveted they're in. Riveted so you have in. to cut the rivets and then right. figure out how you're going to reattach uh, the bellows to it. And supposedly the metal where it's riveted to is susceptible to rust and it's just a weak metal so to even if you're successful at getting the old one off and a new one made, reattaching it and actually having it hold, I, I'm told, I've never tried it. I think Jurgen Kreckel told me this, that getting a new one reattached is incredibly difficult and it's just not worth it. So there are a whole, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Kodak cameras out there, unusable because of those damn bellows. All right. Did we get everybody? I think so. Got them. All right. Well, we, we've run out of time. Um, this has been an incredibly fascinating and incredibly fun podcast. Uh, Brandon, thank you so much, not only for coming, but I'm going to echo what Eric said and just thank you for doing what you're doing. It, it's not even just that you're doing contacts, it's that you have an enthusiasm that it's addicting. You know, I hope people listen to this show and I hope people read about what you're doing and it inspires them. Um, literally yesterday, I had a conversation with Frank Marshman, who is a, an old kind of repair guy. You know, he learned the school of hard knocks way. He invested years and years of his time, money. He learned from other people. Um, he's, he's skilled at, at repairing cameras, but he's a bit jaded at how the internet promotes these shade tree mechanic repairs. And he, he took offense to a couple of things that I had made in a recent post that I made um, about some of the things I do. And I told him that while, yes, I know that there's many wrong ways to, to, to repair a camera, that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep encouraging people because every once in a while, a Brandon Monroe will pop up. 
for every he what did he say joe lunch bucket was the term he used for every 100 joe lunch buckets if we can get one more person like you doing what you do to take the time to ask the experts because like we said in one of the previous episodes about sealing your cameras now is the time to do it a huge number of these original people who've been working on this stuff they're near retirement age are going to die and and there just is a lull uh, or a complete lack of people who want to take up the stuff and learn things to do it. I mean, Aiden's trying to learn, you're trying to learn, Jess is trying to learn. There are people out there, but they need help. They need encouragement. So, yes. you know, I, I doubt Mark Hansen or Harry Shear is going to listen to this episode. Um, I know you've, you know, you commented that some of those guys are more helpful than others. Yes. If anybody hears me talking now and you know how to fix stuff, please try to help people who are trying to learn. They're not all people looking to just dump lighter fluid into a camera like I am to make things working. Some of these people are really trying to learn and it's going to, it's going to extend the life of these cameras. You know, I mean, even if it's just Brandon, he is putting back into the world serviced and properly working contacts that could last another couple decades, you know, of, of shooting enjoyment. So thank you, uh, Eric, thank you for coming on the show. You know, you and I have spoken many, many, many times before you've, you've, you're very active on a lot of the photography groups. You've never spoken in person, but I love your collection of lenses. I wish we could spend more time. I wish I could see those lenses myself. Like that would be the, cool I want to use them. I want to use yeah. them. <laughs> Brandon, the house that I live in in Europe is 700 years old. You're welcome the next 50. <laughs> I appreciate that, Eric. And I really appreciate what you had to say as well, Mike. And, and thank you guys really for having me on here. Like I said, you know, it's a bit of a learning process and I'm doing the best I can to do these the best that I can. So Paul has been working with me. I find out things every day on how I can do these better. And that investment is something that I'm willing to make. And uh, hopefully uh, we get some cameras working in uh, people's Very hands. Cool. And I want them shooting images again. <laughs> awesome. Alex, thanks for coming back on the show. Aiden, always a pleasure to see you on here. We lost uh, Alex. Your father-in-law had to sign off. Uh, we had a couple of people try to get in that couldn't. So sorry for you guys who couldn't talk to us. The next episode, we're going to record actually three weeks from now. We have to take a one week gap between a normal two weeks cadence, but we're going to talk American cameras with our next episode. We're going to cover some of the unloved brands or ones that aren't talked about a whole lot. Uh, I have lined up two guests, Mike Reitzma and Phil Starrett, who are both big time Argus collectors. Um, they know a lot about the history of that company. They're part of the Argus Collectors Group in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm trying to get a few other special guests that have a lot of knowledge on American-made cameras too. So uh, I think the next episode will be pretty fascinating about some cameras that maybe some people haven't given a lot of thought about or, or wouldn't consider using. But believe it or not, some of them cameras are actually really, really fun to use. The topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are influenced by our listeners. We encourage people to join us. Please, if you come on the show, ask some questions, participate in the conversations. Uh, even on shows where we have a guest like we did today, we never know what kinds of questions we're going to get. So uh, we love seeing new faces. We love our regular listeners. But until next time, you guys all have a great rest of your week and uh, have a good night, everybody. Good night. All right, everybody. Good night. Thank you, good night, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Eric, if I could put out a personal plea, could you do me a favor and talk to Stephen Coves? 
and ask him to let me back into the Zeiss Historica group. He kicked me out. He did. He doesn't like me, and I don't know he why. He bad boy. He bad boy. So, so can you do me a favor and say you need to let Mike Ekman back in? I, I did ask for permission to talk for the Zeiss Historical. So, you know, I might have a chance. So okay. I will try. All right. Thank you.